And welcome to Here We Stand. I'm your regular host, Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. It's April the 24th, 2022, and welcome to all of you, including new listeners. This is the voice of the Republic and the Resistance. We're here every Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the BBS Radio Network. We begin today with a remembrance. Samuel Adams in the American Revolution said, The revolution may have been affected first in the hearts and minds of the people, but it took shape in our constitutional conventions where the people learned how to hold and wield power for themselves. And there was a difference, of course, between talk and action. People have to know the experience of what it means to govern themselves. Today's show is going to be a workshop on that, a very important workshop I did last weekend, April 16th, with a whole network of farming communities in southern Ontario, people who are signing up for the Republic. They wanted to know exactly how do we go about setting up assemblies, the lawfulness of it, the jurisdiction we're under within the Republic, linking all of their existing actions to set up food cooperatives, homeschooling, all these other projects people are doing in the face of the COVID police state, how to link them up under a new jurisdiction, the Republic of Canada. That entire two-and-a-half-hour conference workshop we did is online at murderbydecree.com under uh, ITCCS updates and republicofcanada.org under breaking news. But today, it's especially important that you hear this, considering events that are upcoming. And just wanted to flag a couple of those. May 23rd, so-called Victoria Day, if any of you still (laughs) celebrate Queen Victoria's birthday. We're going to rename and reclaim that day across the Canada. And it's going to be Republic of Canada Day. We're going to have Republic flag raisings and reclamations all over the nation as we are going to do on so-called Canada Day, July 1st. These reclamations are not just symbolic. We're actually taking back the land and other institutions. We're going to go into that more in our workshop today and in upcoming discussions. Write to us, republicofcanada at gmail.com. We're not those people who dabble and babble, dabble from issue to issue and move around and then babble all day. We are committed. We're offering our lives to create a new society, not to recover our old privileges, but to create a new nation for everyone. And we are doing so with consistent action that speaks louder than words. That's the theme of our Republic of Canada workshop today you're going to hear. You'll be hearing the first hour of it, and we'll play other parts of it in future shows. But please take notes today. And know that this is the information we're sharing among people who are taking the steps to become active citizens of the Republic within their own Republic assemblies, courts, and other direct institutions of democracy and under our Republic jurisdiction. So enjoy the online workshop today. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. We'll be back soon. And uh, thank you, Kevin, for being with us today. My pleasure. We'll let, we'll let you start. Okay. Hi, everyone. It's really wonderful being here. Um, well, I'm not physically there, but you know what I mean. Um, it's important today for me for a number of reasons where you are, because um, just west of you in a town called Watford, my ancestors came there in the year 1829. And uh, one of them, my great-great-great-grandfather, Philip, took part in the rebellion in 1837, which, of course, has been written out of Canadian school books pretty much. But it was the attempt by people in Upper Canada or Ontario and Lower Canada, Quebec, to overthrow the British crown and set up what they had south of the border, a democratic republic. And that was defeated. uh, And that's a whole story in itself. But in the wake of that, fortunately, my Great-great-great-grandfather Philip wasn't hanged, like other people were, and which is why I'm here today. But um, to me, it, it is very important to remember where we are physically and, and historically, because, because that attempt to set up a democratic republic failed. In Canada, what got frozen in place with it was this kind of uh, dictatorship of, of uh, the crown and the church. And by church, I don't mean Baptists or Methodists or people like that. I mean the church because that was the only church allowed to operate in ontario like the catholic church was the only one allowed to operate in quebec and everybody else were illegal it was like in england you didn't have a license to preach 
you could be arrested. And it was that struggle. My, my family were Baptists in England, and they had to come to Canada to find religious freedom, and they didn't find it over here either, which is why people keep, kept going west all the time. But um, because of, we live under that legacy of this absolute power of crown and, and church, it's why today most of the laws passed in Canada are never even debated in Parliament. They're passed order in council. The Privy Council is kind of this uh, leftover from uh, colonial times, like the governor general, the official head of state, who can disband the government tomorrow if he likes in the name of the, quote, queen. And um, and so we're, we're living under this system of, of real, not democracy at all. There's no accountability. And when something comes along like the, the so-called COVID measures and people are saying, how can be, they be doing this? Well, it's because it's a reflection of that system we've always lived under. Um, not only the COVID measures were passed order in council, wasn't even debate. It's not even a statute passed by the government. It's just an order by a few bureaucrats. The same orders in council passed the Indian Act uh, because the genocide of tens of thousands of children. And again, relevant to where you are, in London, Ontario, is the records from what's called the Mush Hole, which is the one residential school mass gravesite that was ever excavated. I took part in that dig in 2011 with Mohawk elders, and we found the remains of children, but it was completely blacked out of the media and then destroyed later. The whole thing was shut down. But the records of the horrible things done in our name with our money to generations of little children, it's all locked away in here on, in London, Ontario, in the Anglican Church archives, and nobody can get in there, even though the churches are supposed to be accountable for these crimes, the government let them get away with it again. So this is not surprising that we'd be, we'd be struggling today with this police state. It's in our history for it to go this way. Now, the fact that, you know, I grew up in Winnipeg around a lot of Native people, but I didn't understand at all about their life. You can live right next to a crime and not realize it's going on. What's happened now, though, is really tremendous because the fact that COVID is hitting everybody means we have a, a really priceless opportunity now to let people see the kind of society we've been and, and and create an alternative. And as a matter of fact, when we, um, in January, 2015, we had a convention in Winnipeg, there's about 200 of us, about a third of them native. And we set up a framework for a Republic. And of course we can do that. It's our inherent right to govern ourselves. That's basic to common law. We're going to get into that today in, in the workshops and in more of the details of how we go about setting that up. But, um, we have the right to do that. When we set up the Republic, the very same year, in 2015, there was a, an opinion poll done in Canada. 58% of Canadians agreed with us. They want a Republic. They want a separation of this, you know, criminal association with the British Crown. And, and so there's a huge mandate out, out there. Now, what you've been doing in your own communities, your efforts at setting up, you know, food self-sufficiency programs, um, you know, setting up homeschooling, you're already acting like people who are creating your own nation. And there's many people like you all over the country in response to COVID, which in a way we have to thank the COVID police state because it's it's awakened a lot of people. And now we have to unite, but not the top down, not just declaring we're united, but from the grassroots, people uniting all of their different struggles to be self-sufficient, but given it a name, we, we need an overarching jurisdiction. And this is the theme of what we want to talk about today. Why you need a republic. The republic grows naturally out of what you're doing. It's not some foreign imposition. You are, all of us, are that new nation coming into being. What we need, though, is a different jurisdiction because we find this time and again over the years uh, doing this struggle. Um, people go into the crown courts and they expect some kind of due process. And it's a completely rigged game, as anyone knows who's been into it. There's no rule of law anymore, especially with covid there's no uh, accountability either in the courts or in the government, right? They're, they're, they're you know, self-operating, okay? So the first step people often do is say, well, how can we not only have things like growing our own food, schooling our own children, but creating a governance structure? Because we've got to get outside their jurisdiction. As long as you're in their system and in their box, they have you legally. But when you stand outside it, they don't, and they don't want you to know that. And I'll give you some examples of that. Um, first of all, that citizenship card that we you fill out, it says two things. 
it says you disavow all allegiance to Queen Elizabeth and her descendants. And that's the vow, the oath taken by every member of parliament, every cop, every judge in Canada is to one person in London. They're obligated to her, not to you when you elect them, right? Which means they can ignore you, but they can't ignore her. What the citizenship says is we disavow that oath of allegiance and we take it to a republic. And at that point, we're in a different nation. And I've shown this on numerous protests, uh, occupations I've taken part in and other things. I flash that to the police every time they come up and they never once contest it. They may ridicule it, but they never arrest me. They never intervene because they know I'm standing on my own sovereign jurisdiction. And any of us can do that. But we need a new jurisdiction to belong to. And that's really why why we're here to try to try to create the overarching alternative that we can all belong to so that you can, you know, first thing people are going to say is when you set up your own movement, courts, whatever, they say, where's your authority? Where do you get the authority to do this? Well, the authority comes from the republic established by the people. The highest law in common law tradition going back a thousand years to Magna Carta in England, the highest law is the will of the people. That's the only authority you need. But but it isn't just an individually expressed will. That will has to gather together in an assembly. And we'll talk about this today. When you form a republic assembly, 12 or more of you sign a charter, and you say, we are establishing ourselves as a government in our own community. We can debate laws, pass laws, and then enforce them with our own sheriffs. And that's the seed of a new nation. And that's really the only alternative we have to what's going on now, because you can appeal to your blue in the face. You can have all the protests you want. What's the net effect? The COVID corporate dictatorship still keeps happening. So we need to pull out of the system, withdraw our energy and put our our steam in another direction. Right. I mean, I've been to a lot of protests in my life and it's like this this steam that goes out there. But then it's not directed anywhere. It doesn't achieve anything. We want to keep our own steam and put it in a piston. That's our own under our own control. So we can build something different to use that analogy. So um, what we hope to do today is try to relate that what I just said to all of the things you're involved in. And this is a dialogue. So I want to hear from all of you, the things you're involved with, how you see that jiving with what I've been talking about and how especially we can work together on the project of not only assembly, but setting up your own common law courts. Because when you look in history, and I remember from America and my ancestors in Ireland, um, I remember there was an interview I saw back in the 70s of this guy who had helped declare independence from Britain during the Irish Civil War in 1916. And he said the very first thing we did for years before the rebellion broke out, we had our own courts. They're called Brehan Law Courts. They're from the Gaelic Law before the English. And they said, we are going to operate according to our own traditional laws. The native people do that all the time in Canada. We just signed a treaty with, between our Republic and Chilcotin National Congress in British Columbia. And they've operated according to their own land laws for the beginning of time. They've never stopped doing that. They don't recognize so-called crown law because they, it says they're not human beings. It says they're wards of the state. So they have to stand outside it. But we can do the same thing. And so in Ireland, in America, they did the same thing. I remember the um, in Vermont, before the revolution even started, they had their local militia and they would lock up all the crown courts and chase the, the judge down to the dock. And he would ship them back to England and say, we're taking over the courts. We're burning the mortgage deeds because land speculators with Britain and New York, they were grabbing all the land. So the farmers went in, shut down the courts, opened their own courts. And uh, and that's the source of their power. They became the law. And of course, we're all brainwashed to think that taking the law into your own hands is a bad thing, right? Because that undermines the power of the system. But that's the essential power we all do have. We're meant to be the law. Um, there's a, you know, in Westerns, you see this uh, term posse. All the guys get together and they go on a posse and they go and grab somebody. Well, that again is treated like a lynch mob. In fact, it's a, it's a term from common law going back a thousand years. And it comes from a Latin word, and I don't remember all my Latin, but the word posse is in there. Uh, it's in the term posse comitatus in America as well. What it means is traditionally in an English village, when someone did a wrong, all of the um, the adult ad- male adults in that village were obliged to stop that person. If they had harmed somebody, they all had to detain them. 
And every citizen was empowered to be the law. And, and you still have the today, even in Canada, you have citizen arrest laws, which have actually been broadened. It, before, you had to have seen a crime happen before you can arrest someone. Now, all you have to do is even suspect somebody of a crime. And even under Crown Law in Canada, you can detain them, right? So that power is inherent with us. And we are extending that, saying, well, then we can form our own juries. We can put the government and the system on trial, as we've done before. Um, with the International Common Law Court of Justice that forced Pope Benedict out of office in 2013, um, those courts are recognized under international law, just as they would be if they did a verdict in Canada. So that's a, a really important power we have that we have to teach people about and remind them of. And that's kind of a big thrust of um, my book, the uh, Common Law Training Manual, and of course the Republic of Canada book, which I hope you both either seen or will read. Um, by the way, I forgot to uh, welcome, introduce uh, my friend Eva Ponty from France, and she takes part, and she's in our sister republic movement in France. And there's also uh, Michelle and uh, Stephanie from Northern Ontario, uh, Sault Ste. Marie, and Linda from Eastern Ontario, who are with us today. So we have more Ontario and international presentation here. So welcome, everyone. Um, what I want to lead into is that. Um, the, you know, the power of the common law court, many people have tried that out on the West Coast after a republic formed in response uh, in 2015. It really got a new lease on life when COVID hit in March 2020. Within six months, actually, it was sooner. It was more like three months of the COVID regulations. We had organized 22 republic assemblies, mostly in Western Canada. And these were hundreds of people coming to meetings. These were people enthused and, and wanting to take power back. By the summer, 16 of those 22 were destroyed. And we can't look at these things as defeats because in Sun Tzu says in the order of war, there is no final outcome in a war. Everything is about the next battle. And that isn't discouraging for people who have the long view. It is if you, if you want a three-minute solution, which a lot of people are trained to expect in a consumer culture. I want to fix I want a three-minute solution so I can go back to my old life. That isn't the situation we're in. We're in a long-term war. We have to teach our children how to fight this battle and how to be sovereign because it's not going to end overnight. There's, you know, and you look at history, no power ever achieves that power and then gives it up willingly. They keep onto it until it's taken from them in some way. And that's almost a law of nature, certainly a law of human history. And so the COVID dictatorship is here until we replace it with something. And that's what we need to continually remind people. So in the long run, yeah, 16 of the 22 assemblies were wiped out. They were wiped out, as I describe in articles and on my show, in a very classic divide and conquer tactic. And that's in another one of my books, my whistleblower manual. I lay out how the state does this, right? They use um, what the FBI call it bad jacketing. Uh, they use this to destroy the uh, American Indian movement, the Black Panthers. They went in and you target the best organizers. And um, you say, oh, did you hear this rumor about Kevin? Yeah, he really, you see this on the internet stuff. He, he rips off Native people for their money. And he's making up all this stuff about genocide. Don't believe him. And there was that operating. But then there was another more deadly thing. And that is the people themselves sabotaged the assembly. They got afraid. Um, and they were told by infiltrators in that, that if they turned against the Republic and against me, they wouldn't face arrest if they defied COVID measures. They were bribed. It was a typical divide and conquer tactic. Um, and those methods were used. But the only reason they worked is because the people in the assembly were pretty new. They hadn't been through this before. And that was a good thing. It was a lot of new people coming in, which is great. But they, they didn't know how the adversary works. And again, you know, another saying from Sun Tzu, those who know their enemy and know themselves will win every battle. But if you don't know yourself and don't know your enemy, you'll lose every battle. Because we have to really understand the tactics and methods that are used against us. And, you know, one of the, the problems with, with being good-hearted people is that it's not a problem, but it's a tendency that we tend to project our goodness on everything and everyone around us. We think, well, the government wouldn't do that to us, would they? I mean, they wouldn't really be working in the interest of big pharma to 
make a lot of money and get everybody addicted to this thing and controlled with it. I mean, how could they? That's inhuman. It's like the reaction people had when I first described the tortures and, and mass murder of children in residential schools, the mass graves all over the country. They, how could my church have been doing that? You know, how I was raised in the United Church and, you know, we we're taught to send money to Haiti and to help local food bank. How can that same group be murdering Native children? So there's that disconnect. They can't accept it. And so they don't want to look at it. Now, that worked against people in the assembly because then they could be scattered and divided. And that's what happened. But this is step two. Out of that, everything is a process. It's a constant flow, right? There's no final outcome. Out of that, there were a few survivors in every assembly. There were three, four, or five people who didn't give up. And those people now are veterans. They've learned a lesson. And now we they responded by forming smaller groups that couldn't be infiltrated. We often recommend this. Uh, you form cell groups first. Um, and I did this in the, the handout I gave to you, which hopefully you've read. There's kind of a model for how we do that. I don't know if you can read that. But um, what you do first is you form what's called a leadership cell. You get three people together, a convener, a secretary, treasurer, and a sheriff. And those people get firm in their principles. They get to know each other. They, they, they know they're not going to stab each other in the back. They have a common commitment to the republic, to the vision, and to our local common law assembly. And once they're solid, they each go out and recruit three other people. Okay. Now, what that does is very important when you're in a police state, because in a police state, you don't want a big organization. I've had since 95, when I started this whole campaign, four different organizations destroyed from within by classic infiltration disruption, like I've talked about, the black ops methods. When you have a big organization with a few people on top, you can do that easily. It's easy to wipe that out. But when you have a lot of small groups a lot of whom don't even know each other, and they're all working away. It's harder for them to put out those hundred brush fires. And when you look at history, like in the French resistance during the war or whatever, they had small cell groups of three or five people, and they go out and do an action. And they were linked to other groups, but they didn't all know each other. So if they were infiltrated, only they could get taken on, not others. That's the situation we're in. Now, when you get, okay, so each one of the people in the, in the leadership cell recruit three others, when those 12, and you count them, that's 12 in total, three people recruiting three each, you've got 12. Then you've got the basis for an assembly. And that way people know each other, they're familiar, they've done work together, and they can sign the charter and have an assembly. And it's a more solid foundation that way because what we did, our mistake was out west when we opened up the first assemblies, we said, come on in, anybody wants to be part of the Republic Assembly. And even if they weren't infiltrators, People came in with all sorts of levels of understanding and experience and commitment. And the people who wanted to go further were held back by those who said, no, teach me more. I'm new to this. OK. And it was all a big mess. OK. So you've got to build an assembly on a more durable basis from the grassroots by having these cells that then unite. OK. And there's a whole outline of how we eventually then link assemblies into a district assembly and then eventually into a national congress. And which is always accountable to the people, that people can be recalled at any point because power lies in the hands of the people. And we're going to set up constitutional guarantees to make sure that our republic in Canada does that. That's kind of the, the, the whole basis of our republic, that it's always answerable to the people. So um, that's kind of the, the whole structure of how, how it operates. Now, today, what we want to do. And. We also want to hear from all of you about how you want to make this happen in your own community. We want to apply this model to say, okay, how do we build up that leadership core right where you are? Um, if you're on board with the idea of, of joining the Republic, Trish and others have citizenship cards you can fill out. Uh, that immediately places you outside the jurisdiction of Canada. Okay, so a few questions on that. Um, People say, well, does that mean I'm committing treason? No. Uh, treason is not an opinion. Treason is an action. Okay, so you cannot be tried for your thoughts. That's an old principle of common law. Going back to Magna Carta, it says no one can be tried for their thoughts. You're not guilty for a thought. Even You can even get up and say, I'm going to shoot Justin Trudeau, and that's not a crime. If you follow through on it, it might be one thing, but... The way it is now, thought has been criminalized everywhere in the world. You can't have a thought without it being said, no, you're, you're out of line there. You've got to get back in line. It's group thinking on a big scale, like 
1984, right? So, no, you're not committing treason. You're, in fact, the, tre- the treason is being committed by the present government in Canada and around the world. They're answerable to a few corporate interests, not to the people. And that's treason. Um, secondly, what happens to all of your benefits when you take out citizenship? Well, nothing, because you get benefits through the corporate fiction, which I think a lot of you know about already, the capitalized letters in the name, which is was given to you when you're registered at birth. It's not you. It's a it's a dummy corporation that the government taxes, that the government controls, but they don't control you. You, the flesh and blood men and women, step out of that corporate fiction and you say, I'm a citizen of the republic. You can do whatever you want over there to that corporate fiction. And that's the only one they ever call into court. That's the only one they ever arrest, which is kind of a weird thing to realize. But they're not addressing you. They're addressing the corporate fiction. So when they say, and this is the way they always try to get you, they say, what is your name? Okay. Okay. So a name is from an old word in uh, Hebrew and then Latin, which was what when there was a slave, they would hang a plaque around their neck saying this one is owned by this person. That plaque was called a nomos or a name. So a name in this culture says who owns you. Your capitalized name says the so-called crown or the city of London banking cartel owns me and it owns my children. If I get divorced, I am a custodial or a non-custodial parent. Okay. What does that mean? A custodian is somebody who takes care of something. You're taking care of your child on behalf of the state who owns them. Okay. That's what their whole legal system does. Right. So you step out of that and, um, and you're free, but you have to believe you're free. You have to know you're free and act like it. And like I said, the example of this, every time I show the citizenship card to cops, they not only back off, but some of them show interest. And I've even recruited a few cops. I hand them a flyer and I say, come to our common law workshop. Disavow your oath of allegiance. The queen take it to the people in the republic. That's our lawful right. That's what the majority of Canadians want to do. And, uh, and it works. But you have to stand on the moral high ground all the time. And we've got the, the people, we've got the numbers, we've got law on our side. We just have to exert it. And that's what we're hoping to talk about how to do that today in the, in the smaller groups. Um, I'm going to, oh yeah, just give a few things for people who may not have read the books. Um, I urge you to, because it kind of gives a vision. And, you know, the old saying from the Bible is without a vision, the people perish. And um, that vision is right at the heart of everything we do in the Republic because this is a continuation of something our people have been doing for generations in Canada. It hasn't been visible, but it's been there. And I remember um, found a letter from uh, that ancestor I mentioned, Philip Annett, uh, my great, great, great grandfather. And he wrote a letter back to his relatives in 1830 from Upper Canada, Watford, just west of London. And he said, this is a land of liberty and plenty. There's no taxes. There's no game wardens. We're all treated as equal with one another. And the crops are so rich, you don't even use, need to use dung after five or 10 years. It's a rich, free land. Now look what it's become. And we are getting back to that original vision of, of my ancestor and all of us who came here. And it was interesting because he also made a note of how he was working alongside the Chippewa natives in that area. Now, our early ancestor lived with the native people we got along fine that's why there's so many metis or mixed blood people in canada because um you know we interbred we intermarried we worked together but then what changed is the crown would come in and their missionaries from the church of england and the church of rome and they would say stop that you you cannot do that they would cart away the natives and their children into these death camps they still call residential schools and they created that permanent fear like what happened in America between the first slaves in America were actually white people. There were children from the city of London who were brought over as indentured slaves under Virginia plantations. And then when they brought in the Negro population, they got the blacks and the whites to hate it and fear each other. Look at the Civil War, right? When they were really all in the same boat. And that is the situation now with natives and white people in Canada, so-called white people. Um, we have that common tradition of living together and then facing the same genocide. Now we need to form our own nation. And the, the basis of the Republic of Canada, as we signed this treaty in, with the Choco people in BC, proved it's, it's uh, embraced here in the flag. 
The flag represents the three founding nations, the three stars, the English, the French, the indigenous. And the two borders, this is a very important symbol. It's called the Turo Wampum. This was the treaty signed between our ancestors and the Eastern nations, the Mohawk, the Haudenosaunee, and others in the 1600s when we first arrived. And what the treaty said is we will share the land together. You and your ship, us and our canoe, we go down the river together, side by side, sharing the land equally. That's what the flag means. Now, I remember going to um, Ganawake, the Mohawk Reserve west of Montreal, when they were helping us do the dig at the mush hole in Brantford to un- re- recover the remains of the children who died there. They signed us an agreement with us. And what uh, Gontaneda Horn, the clan mother, said was, tell your people about the two-row wampum, because we have always lived by it, but your people forgot about it. And we have to get back to that. And that's one of the, that's why a third of our delegates at the Convention of the Republic were native, because we are reestablishing that. That's what the Republic is. You can't get that under the present system. The Indian Act says natives are not human beings. The wards of the state, they have no rights. As a matter of fact, mandatory shots in the arm have been the law since 1874 in Canada when it comes to natives. When I was a minister in Port Alberni, native women would come to me saying, the Mounties just showed up and took my child away and they're shoving needles in its arm, you know, and I have no say over the matter, I'll go to jail. That's still in the Indian Act. So when we complain about it being done to us now, it's been happening to our brown neighbors all along. And this is one of our ways to make up for our historical complicity in that with our tax money and our church money in that we funded that mass murder. We can reverse it now, not with words, you know, not with apologies and that other bullshit. We have to recreate the nation from the ground up, but on an honest basis through equality. And, you know, that's the hard part. Like I say, it'll span years, but it's really the only alternative. We know in practice that's the case. So, um, those books really important to read and what um, we can get more into that. But what I want to do now is ask if there's questions or comments that have come out of anything I say, I know there's a lot there and we can get into that a lot more, including in subsequent meetings, more one-to-one uh, and, you know, follow-up meetings. But I just want to know if there's questions or comments any of you have from anything I've said so far, and we can, we can get into that. Some form of diplomatic immunity by signing the card. Like in a diplomatic immunity, we have where uh, somebody from the UN can do what they want uh, pretty well without getting a ticket because they're not under the laws of the states or the country they're in. Uh, so is this a form of diplomatic immunity that we're trying to achieve? It's like that, although it's not called diplomatic immunity, but you have the status like you were a citizen of another country, like Eva in France. What can they do? If Eva came to Canada and the cop didn't like her, they couldn't arrest her. They could deport her, maybe. But how do you deport us when we're right in our country? Right? I mean, so it's called diplomatic immunity. All, um, it's it's the, the fact that you're a citizen of a different nation gives you the same thing. As a matter of fact, it gives you more. Because a diplomat is still under the laws of, of their own country. You're under the law of your own nation, the republic. And you help formulate those laws. Uh, that's the, the thing in the assembly. You can pass your own laws. You can amend the constitution. Getting in now on the ground floor is really important because you can help create the new Republic. Right. And that's one of the things, a really important question you ask, because it's, it, it, it's a first question people always have. What happens to me if I join, right? What's my protection? What's my status under the law? So thank you for that. Okay. So because we're part of this system here that we don't really like, all right, and they're paying seniors a pension. So if you write those cards out and stuff and say, well, I'm no longer part of that establishment, can they cut off your pension? No, because I mentioned before, you have a pension. You, the, the flesh and blood man, do not have a pension. Your corporate fiction has the pension, right? You, the corporate fiction. And it's not pulling out Canada when you sign that card. You, the flesh and blood man, are. And I know it's it's a hard idea at first, but it works in practice because they never arrest you when you don't give your name and you just say, I'm a citizen of a different nation. They never arrest you, right? They can they can try, but then it's they're breaking the line, obstructing justice and assaulting you, and they can be charged, and they know it. 
But when you we have people who are citizens who keep receiving benefits, the health insurance, pension, all of that, you kind of have to live like Neo in the Matrix. Okay. He comes out of the Matrix into the flesh and blood reality, but then he goes back in. So you go back into the Matrix to collect your pension, to get your health. You know, you don't have to rock the boat in that way. And as a matter of fact, we recommend to people, most people that you don't, especially if you have children in a family. You don't have to be on the front line like some of us like to do, right? Um, or are forced to do or, or end up by fate doing. Um, you can operate at any level of, of public display you like within the Republic. A lot of people don't come out openly right away, but none of that stuff is affected at all. Now, that's not to say you can't be targeted. Okay. Uh, I haven't been able to get an income or a job in 20 years because I'm on a blacklist. Okay. But fortunately, my kids have grown up. You know, I've learned to operate this way. But you all have to consider your own situation. You know, like Jesus says, count the cost of a journey before starting it. Although you don't necessarily know what that cost is until you get on the journey. Right. And don't forget the one basic weapon they have against us is our own fear of what might happen to us. Okay. And when you've been through a lot in life, you know that ultimately what can happen to you? What are they going to take from me? Right. Um, my life, but it's going to be taken anyway. The question is, how do you want to die? How do you want to go out? Right. Um, but the reality is, is that when we acquire that power within ourselves and that knowledge, amazing things happen. I mean, I just give you a little anecdote about that, which I love to do. Um, we had a, uh, one night, 20 years ago, in the downtown part of Vancouver, the police were, were doing a, a roundup and beating up of all the street people, mostly Native people in, on the street. They had one of our friends in the Vancouver police station, and they were beating him up in the cell. There was this old woman, Maggie, and she was kind of like your, your stereotypical, quote, drunk Indian. And she had been horribly tortured in residential school the whole bit. And there's Maggie out in front of the police station at midnight, and she's dragging a police barrier to block off traffic. And they were all chanting free Trevor, free Trevor. Right. And she had no fear. And there were 20 riot cops standing there and they didn't know what to do. And I remember going over to one of the cops saying, you, you guys are better to let Trevor up because there's many more where she came from. Like she had lost her fear because she knew she had nothing left to lose. I mean, they were beaten up every day by cops. What do they have left to fear? And they let Trevor out an hour later. Right. Like that kind of presence, and when the, when the system sees that you've overcome your fear, they're powerless. And I, I went on, I didn't mean to go on about that, but um, you're not Kevin, affected. I, Kevin, Kevin, I got I to gotta interject. Sense. I got to interject. I, I worked for 30 years with the OPP. I worked in northern communities. I saw the substance abuse up there firsthand. We arrested people over and over every day to save their lives because they were too drunk to know enough to come in out of the 40 minus 40 degree weather. Yep. We didn't beat them. No cops get paid extra for beating people. We didn't care what color their skin was. We would cut their hair and bathe them. So we, we got to get away from this anti-police thing here police want to you. go and do their job and get home safe to their family at the end of the day now that's not i'm not saying the un cops that they're bringing in for ottawa and place like that that's a totally different animal i'm talking about our police so mm -hmm. we got to be really careful with that and a couple other things and again i'm not attacking you here i'm just i've got to speak up because this has to be an honest discussion here for it to be effective and this is a big decision that you're asking people to make. So we got to make sure that we're not making it on rhetoric. We're actually making it on facts. So Dave brought up the good point. I got, I got mentioned, I got noted here, loss of government services. So if, if we remove ourselves from the corporation, which the corporation of Canada, there is a risk that you're not going to get access to healthcare. You're not going to get EI. You're not going to get pension. Uh, because if, if you're withdrawing yourself, I understand what you're saying about the, the corporate entity versus the person, but they're still, the government's still in control of that. So that's something we still have to be uh, cognizant of, and we can't, we can't trivialize it because it could happen. And 
in the bottom line with the common law, and, and I agree with it 100% common law, natural law. However, as long as the government controls the use of force, we're going to be under maritime law. So as long as the military and the police are backing the government, that's what we're stuck with. We can, we can show them these cards. I can guarantee you, if when I was on the road, if someone would have shown me that card and I had reasonable probable grounds to make an arrest, that card wouldn't have made an iota of difference. And I can guarantee you, 99% of the frontline officers know nothing about common law and natural law. I taught recruits for three years at the Ontario Police College, my last three years of my job. It wasn't mentioned once in the training at the Ontario Police College. It wasn't mentioned once throughout my career for promotional training. There were no conferences on it. And police are very well trained. They, they get a lot of training. And the common law, natural law, the only, the only common law that I knew of was things like uh, it's common law that you're innocent until proven guilty. It's things like that. Uh, as a child under 12 cannot be held criminally responsible. That's common law. It, the, uh, the common law, natural law that you're discussing was never once brought up in any of my training in 30 years, never once brought up the police college. And so if you show that card to someone on the front, a cop on the front lines, that's not going to mean anything. It might, maybe you might be able to get off down the road, but they're going to affect the arrest. You might be able to appeal it on those grounds in court. And if the court agreed with you, then you might get out of custody. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting in custody with your card. So we, we got to be realistic when we're talking about something as important as this. Um, okay. and yes. I'm I sorry. Appreciate- sorry for the uh, rant. Sir, what is your name again? I, I didn't get your name. It's Joe no, Jacobowski. What did, uh, you- Jacob? Joe, J- Joe Jacobowski. I appreciate your talk before. Okay. Yeah, right. I remember you. Uh, thank you. I appreciate your remarks. They're very accurate. Um, I'm glad that you're you have a compassionate attitude towards Native people in your in your part of the world. Where I come from, Vancouver has the highest rate of natives killed in custody by police of anywhere in Canada. It's a war zone, and so I was in no way trying to generalize about all police. I was speaking from my experience. And the reason Native people are drunk, of course, is because when you're a child and you had the teeth yanked out at a young age in a residential school without painkiller and see your children, your brother and sister raped and thrown into a ditch after being killed, you're not going to be in the best of shape. And so I am surprised that they're only drinking and only doing drugs. That's our legacy of genocide, which Canada is still not facing. The Canadian government and the courts that you cited are doing everything possible as criminal actors to cover up the crime and expect all of us to pay for it. So it's really um, part of the bigger game plan we have to look at, the whole reality of living in a genocidal culture, what that does to people on the ground. Um, I I hope that you will consider um, how to reach out to your fellow police. One of the things, you're right when you say people, police react that way, but don't forget, it's because they don't know any better. And when you talk to them, as we've done, we made a big effort in Vancouver in our assemblies to reach out to police, to bring them into our common law workshops. Um, my experience is, no, you're not arrested right away, by and large, by showing your card. And yes, force, force is a lot of things. It isn't just physical force, because as a matter of fact, when people have to beat you up, they've lost. Um, when they have to resort to violence, they're admitting they can't do it any other way. And you, they know you have the moral high ground. We can't be intimidated by that. Yes, we'll go to jail. Yes, we'll lose our benefits, as I've done. Lots of people lose benefits. And I didn't mean to uh, lighten that whole aspect, but I wanted to just address the whole question of fear, which is our fear of retaliation is how we're kept in line. It's not because of a cop out there. It's because of the cop in our head saying we can't do that or we'll get in trouble. And our thing here is an antidote to that. So I hope that, you know, you and I can talk more and we can talk in the group of how we reach police, how we teach them about the common law. And, you know, your advice about that is greatly appreciated, and I hope that you will consider doing that with us. Now, um, on that, though, I want to kind of segue it into another thing I forgot to mention, which is that um, part of the process of forming a common law republic assembly is exactly this kind of discussion of consequences. Uh, Because just like in a common law court, Verdict. You can have all the sentences and verdicts you want. How do you enforce it? Enforcement is key in common law. When you look at the tradition of it, as I mentioned, every citizen who's a member of the Republic is obligated to enforce the verdicts of your court. So 
you have the right to do that in a using um, um, what's it called the term proportional uh, response where you're not you, you know to detain someone you don't hit them over the head you just peacefully detain them in the case of a citizen arrest and hand them over to the police or other things but it's that key thing it isn't just about our rights it's about our responsibility our responsibility as citizens is to one another and to the republic so it's it is a big step and it's not for everybody so this is in a way kind of sifting out today and in future meetings who is willing to do and who isn't to do let's just be honest with each other and and talk about that if you're not willing to take this step fine but think about it talk to others about it that's how the whole process spreads are there any questions other comments or questions yeah hi hi um I feel that knowledge is power because there's a lot of information online about uh, how to claim your status lawfully, like through their own system where you can protect yourself. Like in the States, they have uh, David Strait. I've listened to a lot of his videos. I don't know what anybody else thinks about it, but he says uh, he shows you how to claim your status and then land patent because you don't own your home, you don't own your children, how to land pat or patent your property and record it uh, so that they can't come and take your home or your kids or you out of your house or your crops. And then he tells you to claim your minor estate. So once you've done all of that and you're really educated, because it's all about education, uh, then after that, they really can't touch you. And I know in the States, it's growing. It's called a state national uh, and it's getting really big right now. So it's like there's two forms of government right now. We have our uh, fake turtle government and we have our government, which supersedes everyone else. But we don't have the numbers here. I just feel safer doing it that way than just a card that way. Uh, and we take back our actual powers of attorney because you know how it works, right? When you sign your bank account, your like with the birth certificate thing, you know, you've also signed away your power of attorney. And I don't know, I just, uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff like that. And in Canada, they have uh, unite the people.ca. Uh, they have great videos about our constitutions and our, how Canada works. So when you say know your enemy, <laughs> it's really good. I, I feel a lot more, uh, a lot more safe that we are a lot more confident. You said it's all about confidence. The more I learn, the more confident I feel. I just kind of want to do it through the kind of revoking my uh, birth certificate. Like I'm not revoking my social okay, well, insurance or nothing, but what were you going to say? Okay, so that's an important point, Linda. I just wanted to jump in on that because um, the fact of taking out citizenship in a different national jurisdiction like the republic automatically nullifies all of that you can't really use the system to get out of the system you, you, you can't go into a crown court and say i'm going to get out of crown jurisdiction they won't let you or they'll fob you off into a lawyer who'll make a lot of money for you and nothing will change i mean that's the the experience all the time so the very fact that you say i'm not part of canadian law anymore i'm under our own common law jurisdiction that's all nullified automatically and how that plays out in terms of mortgages and all that other stuff, we still haven't worked out because we don't have the numbers yet. We don't have the size yet to get into all that. But we have to build like that. Gradually, those things all happen. But if you build on the wrong foundation, as you know, the house is going to fall. And the foundation isn't one foot in the system, one foot out. It, although, you know, in terms of your fake name and that you can operate that way on an individual level, we have to build a foundation outside altogether. And it's a new idea for people. We're not used to doing that. And so there'll be doubts in that, and it's it, some ways trial by error. We don't have answers. We're learning them as we go, like anything. But we have a big body of experience of how that system doesn't work. If you go in, there's no there's no outlet there. Okay. He was teaching that. I wasn't sure. But, it just sounded good. But uh, so what about traveling yeah, and passports and stuff like that? That doesn't affect passport. That's just for here in Canada. Right? The card? Citizenship, yeah. Yeah. Like I say, you, the passport is, a, is your corporate fiction. Again, right. it's all. Okay. Other, anything on Linda, what Linda said, or any other comments or questions? So I have a question that relates to the previous question. 
Um, so how does the Republic of Canada recognize and process different jurisdictions of land usage? So we maybe I have my corporate fiction that owns a property here in Tilsonburg or in Tilsonburg, but um, the government of Canada has rights to that property as well. So um, how, like, are we going to find ourselves on property? Who has rights to that property now? Does it, is it, is it the Republic of Canada or the government of Canada? You know, we get into those issues. Well, of- neither. Okay. What, what the land is, first of all, uh, the piece of property is a fiction. Okay. In natural law, nobody owns the land because you can't. It's somebody who said it's like the flea owning the dog, right? Um, you can own an alienated thing called property, just like an alienated thing called the corporate fiction is what the government thinks they control. But in reality, here's the way it is. When the Crown, the Crown occupied this land illegally, they declared all of it under Crown jurisdiction. And settlers, including you today, were told they own everything the six top six inches of soil you have title to, because that's the depth of a plow that you could grow crops on it. But everything under that is owned by this fiction called the crown. Why? Well, because they stole it because they just said they were right. And they had an army behind them to in, in, enforce their rule by decree. But in reality, nobody owns it. If you go into the land title office and you trace it back, you eventually ask, well, who owned it originally? Well, it was occupied by, probably the Chippewa people who you were and native original land title has already been recognized in the Canadian Supreme court, right? A low deal title. Mm. The only way they could get around that. And so in other words, the short answer is the Chippewa actually have traditional title to the land you're on, but they were destroyed because every time they signed a treaty, they formed a thing called a first nation, which is a corporation, which is estranged from their traditional people. And that first nation can sign a treaty and sign away this fiction called the land. So that's why they, the, the native puppet chiefs are brought in to sign all these treaties, which our traditional people say no to because they say we didn't approve this. These are government funded chiefs signing away land in our name without our permission. Um, and so what the, the way we're imagining, and we're still working this out, no, there's no kind of clear answer to this, but we have a, an economic commission looking into all this land and and banking and the economy and all of that. One of the proposals that's come up with is that you get together with the traditional indigenous people of your area. And like I say, we've already started signing treaties, nation to nation treaties with them. And we can work on one with the Chippewa indigenous elders. And I actually know several of them because they help with their dig at the mushroom in Brantford. And we sign up a new treaty allowing you and you get an agreement with them where they grant title to you to be on their land within the broader federation of the Republic of Canada. So in effect, what you're doing is you've taken the land away from crown jurisdiction. Now, um, as our previous brother mentioned, of course, that's going to respond. The government is not going to like that. They're going to respond in force because you cannot take the land from them. Otherwise they have no authority. Right. But that's why we have to have the long-term vision. We may lose one or two or three battles, but every time we go into a battle, we influence somebody, we influence the cop. We influence the media. We influence somebody. And gradually the idea that we can govern ourselves and own our own land, it gets out there. And then in another 10 or 20 years, everyone will believe it. 20 years ago, no one used the word genocide except our movement when it came to residential schools. Now the prime minister is using it. He said, yes, we committed genocide, July 2019. You see, if you persist, you have a force. And this is going back to the original comment about what is force. It isn't a club. It isn't a jail. It isn't a court. It's ideas. It's a vision. It's whether something's legitimate or not. And if enough people believe in it, you're the power. That's reading history. That's how revolutions happen. Right up to the very last moment, people are saying, this system's never going to fall. And then suddenly, boom, everyone shifts like hundreds of months, and the army and the police come in, and bang, you've got a new society. That's the process we're involved in right now. Some clarification on something you said. Maybe I misheard you. Are you saying that, are you saying that the land that I'm living on in the house that I'm living in that I've worked my whole life to purchase and maintain, I should now go to the natives 
and get them to ask them if I can stay on that land. And, and it, 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 which, go, which goes totally against what you're saying about nobody actually owns the land. Because if they don't, if they don't, no, own, they don't own, own it, any, they don't own the land any more than I own the land. No, they don't own it. I didn't say they owned it. I said they, they weren't even the, they weren't even the first people. They weren't even the first people in North America, if you study history. So that whole they land were the people that we occupied. Okay, we don't have to argue about this. All I'm saying is that we let's be clear about what we mean. We're not saying anyone owns the land. I said that at the beginning. Nobody owns the land. There's titles. The title that you're given was fraudulently imposed by the crown who grabbed the land against everybody's interest, including yours. Right. So we're saying you work out a new deal with the native people whereby they grant you a lodial title through their relationship with you within our federation of the republic. And that's like the what, flag if, what said, if they say no the land equally? What if they say no? You so work now it I'm, out now and I'm you under the, it. You now, I'm under, now I'm under their direction rather than the crown's direction. Is that what you're no. saying? No, you're not listening. I'm listening. You're not you're listening. Just, you're saying I've got to go to the, the natives to ask them to t- transfer title over to me under no. the new republic. I'll say it one more time, okay? And I, like I say, there's no need to argue about this, but I just need to be clear about what we're saying. There's no argument. I'm just asking. The republic is founded on the understanding. Yeah. So the Republic is founded on the understanding that this land was fraudulently occupied. It's, it's still operating under criminal fraud and genocide. And in order to change that, the relationship between native and non-native has to be renegotiated. In terms of European law going back 2,000 years, a lodial title stays in the hands of the people who had it originally. And yes, you're right. Maybe there were people 10,000 years before they, we don't know that. We know from archaeology, since I've studied it, that indigenous people in this part of the world, your part of the world, have been there at least nine to 10,000 years. We've been here a couple hundred. So obviously we have to negotiate with the people who held that title before us. We do that on an equitable basis, looking just beyond your own house to the broader picture of everybody, then we realize that we are now in a new relationship and that can be peacefully negotiated, renegotiated on a new foundation. That's all we're saying. Anybody else on that? Any thoughts about any of that? Can I just, uh, can I just, uh, sorry. So I just want to follow up and see if I understand this clearly. So you're saying that there's the government of Canada fiction and they've and uh, the native community has also this fiction that we can we can subscribe to a title through the through the native community, but ultimately we know that nobody really owns the land, so it's just a matter of which group of people are we accepting a fiction of ownership. Is that what you're saying? Well, the notion, not quite, but you're on the right track. The ownership doesn't lie in any one person or group. Ownership is held by the nation. That's one of the simple, and you can read about this in our book. Um, people like, and, and you see that in, in, in common law, this is another basic principle. You have all sorts of individual rights as long as they don't interfere with somebody else's right. It says that in the French Declaration of the Rights of Man. You have liberty up to the point at which it hurts somebody else. And then you have to work out a common interest. And that's what we're saying about the land there's enough wealth in this country to, for every person, if you took all the wealth in Canada and divided it equally among all of you, you'd each get a quarter of a million dollars every year. Well, where's all that wealth? It's been pumped out of the country. Our first step is to keep that wealth in the country. And the way you do that is to take back the land and the resources. You can't do that on a, on a me versus you basis. You've got to do it on a cooperative model. Otherwise, you've got to, like you say, that you're concerned about, you've got a new elite coming in and telling you what to do. So we're setting up a new cooperative model of existence, including land ownership. So basically right now, um, right here, um, basically right what you're saying is really nobody owns the land. But our government has told us that it's them who owns the land. So you're saying for us to say no. And by the way, we're going to partner with the indigenous people. And we're going to lay title to it. Is that what you're saying? 
Not right away, because naturally we can't do that right away. It's kind of a long-term model. It's a plan we're working towards. We have to, um, you know, get our own ducks in order. We've got to get among ourselves agreement about we want to head in this direction. And then we have to negotiate on an equal basis, which has never been done, treaties with Native people like we've done in the Chilcotin people in, on the West Coast. And more of those, there's four other nations that are trying to do that. Now, the people who've been speaking have had a concern that, well, I don't want a Native band telling me what to do. That won't happen. Especially it won't happen if you get on the ground floor now and are part of those treaty making with the Native people so you can do it on an equitable basis. We're trying to get away from the whole system of a few bureaucrats telling everyone what to do, but that's you to be involved in to prevent that from happening again. So that's kind of the general view on that. 